Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Good morning. The scripture reading for this week is Psalm 8. This is a, a commentary within the Bible on Genesis 1, written by David, talking about how though we are nothing in comparison to all of creation that God has made, God has chosen to make us a little lower than himself. Now, the word Elohim is translated in this passage as angels, but it could just as well be translated lower, lower than God, which would be accurate to the overall biblical storyline since it is underneath God that we reign and we are going to judge the angels. But all the same, we have dominion over so many works of the hands, even though we are nothing in comparison to the stars that God made. And that kind of reversal of expectations that's true in how man is used as the ruler is also true in other areas that's being brought out. It is not out of the mouth of strong people that there is strength, but rather out of babes and sucklings. God using unexpected weak things in order to calm and win the world. And so we read in Psalm 8, To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who had set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. The uh, pastoral prayer for this week will involve some comments on Roe. Um, I'm still processing everything that happened today as I am working and recording this. But the basic understanding that we should be taking into our understandings of road is that it's a great thing to which we should thank God for, but it's going to make the fight to end abortion harder, not easier. It's good that we no longer have this as the federal law of the land, there are a lot of pro-abortion people who are now heated, ready to fight. And there's going to be fights at the state level that are going to be hard. This is to be celebrated, but it is the beginning of a very long battle. So while we thank God for this victory, we should also ask him for strength to continue on as is necessary. Chapter 11. We will be looking at verses 20 through 30 today. 
And unless I change my mind, we will be going back in in verse 28 next week and looking at verses 28 through 30 again. Because there are a lot of details I want to say, but I don't want to have those details distract us from the main point of verses 20 through 30. And so we start and think about verses 20 through 30 today. We are in the third section of narrative within Matthew's Gospel, and there's a lot of rejection. Some people are clearly accepting Jesus, and we're contrasting that with the improper responses, but we're going to find a lot of rejection. And although the Pharisees are the primary vocal points, they're not the only ones. As is clear enough from the beginning of our text and continuing on throughout it. Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Father, please help us today to repent, to turn, to not proudly think that we are okay, but to consider where we could be mistaken and humble us, Lord, so that we do repent. Be with this service today. Guide what I say and guide what people hear. Allow your spirit to be involved in the entirety of that process. Let him guide what we say, both during this service and afterwards. In this room, in the hallway, outside. Allow for the conversation to reverberate and allow then, Lord, for us to encourage one another with the words we are hearing today. And so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old preaching adage and proverb that the goal of preaching is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Now, based off of some wisdom I got from Pastor Steve Woodman in Arbor Church, I'm glad that that's not necessarily the goal of the preacher, even if it is the goal of preaching. Because as he points out, that's impossible to manufacture effectively. Because those of us who are prone to being comfortable will hear the comfort we're giving to the afflicted, and those of us who are prone to being afflicted will hear the affliction that's supposed to be going towards the comfortable. So I am very grateful that the primary way in which this goal of preaching is accomplished is through the Spirit working through the Word. To apply the affliction to those who need it and the comfort to those who need it. As the Word focuses on each. But what's significant about this preaching proverb for our text today is that this is exactly what Jesus does. He starts off in verses 20 to 24 by afflicting the comfortable. The proud cities who did not repent when they saw his mighty works. And then in verses 28 to 30, he comforts the afflicted. Explaining a little bit in the middle about why those two situations are. And he kind of teaches us that by God's grace, 
The ones who are called and the ones who respond to the gospel are not the proud, but the lowly, the humble, those ready to acknowledge their need. In light of this, there are two ways we could talk about the three scenes we're going to look at today. We could, as we actually in fact will, look at it based off of what Jesus is doing within each one. But we could also label it according to what theological theme is taught. And if we did that latter thing, we'd end up finding something maybe a little bit surprising. So it starts with man's responsibility. It moves into God's sovereignty and then finishes with an open invitation to all. Things that in our creaturely thinking sometimes we try to say are contradictory or pushing against each other in tension. But here, as Charles Spurgeon says, they are all here in happy combination. So with that in mind, we move into seeing how God calls the lowly and not the proud. By starting in verses 20 to 24, Jesus rebukes unrepentant cities. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. This is Matthew introducing the rebuke that will follow in verses 21 to 24. And he says at this point in time, Jesus begins to upbraid, that is, rebuke, or even more strongly, to denounce those cities wherein he did his mighty works. Mighty works that we saw so significantly in chapters 8 to 9, where he's raising the dead, where he's cleansing lepers, where the blind are receiving their sight and the lame are walking. Those mighty works didn't lead the cities in which they were done to repent. And so Jesus comes in and denounces them, rebukes them, upbraids them for their failure to respond. But perhaps at first this seems a little surprising. When we were in chapters 8 and 9 and seeing those miracles, we saw a lot of optimistic things from the people. They were responding with some sort of awe. And they were excited. They were bringing in all sorts of crowds in order to be healed by him. Let's go ahead and turn back to chapter 8 and look at a few examples. After the first three groupings of uh, miracle accounts, Matthew writes in Matthew 8:16, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. So there, there's at least some sort of enthusiasm about his healing ministry because people are coming to him in order to be healed. There's large graphs of people, that many that were possessed with devils. Verses 18 through 22 even shows some people who want to follow him. They have this desire in their mind. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will go with thee wherever thou goest. 
And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Now there's an implication of where we're ultimately going with this in this, that they have the intent of going, but Jesus is questioning how deep-seated that intent is. But as many multitudes are coming, and as people are saying, I will follow you wherever you go, there's a certain enthusiasm that continues on even into nine, chapter 9 and verse 8. All the crowds that have coming in now have seen Jesus declare someone's sins forgiven and vindicates that he can do so by having the man walk. And in chapter 9, verse 8, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. And even again, in, chapter, in verse 33, And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. The crowds are following him. The crowds are even marveling at what he is doing. They're enthusiastic about it, and yet he's able to declare in Matthew eleven twenty, they repented not. Now I, I do think there's a, a helpful lesson for us to remember that we shouldn't confuse enthusiasm with repentance. Enthusiasm for the words of God is something that man can generate. Repentance is something that God himself gives. There are beautiful times in which people are super energized and excited because, quite frankly, enthusiasm does often accompany repentance. Turning from sin and turning to Christ is an exciting thing. But there are many examples... And indeed, there's a parable of the soils coming soon, which talks about stony ground and things sprouting up quickly, but having no root, withering away. There's many times where the enthusiasm that someone has because of an emotionally high moment, perhaps generated by a particular attempt or particularly emotionally high event, doesn't actually correspond to repentance but having no root, it withers away. Within both our own personal life and our ministry to those around us, we must be careful not to confuse the enthusiasm with repentance, but as John would say in Matthew 3, look for the fruits that are meat for repentance. The change of lifestyle, the long-standing commitment to Christ and his word. But though these towns were enthusiastic, they did not repent. And so Jesus gives this, this declaration of judgment to them. We start in, with Chorazin and Bethsaida in verses 21 to 22. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! 
Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. You must know a little bit about Tyre. Sidon is a city within Tyre, and it's relatively obscure. The city disappears until the prophets who are writing and pronouncing judgment after Solomon. But the pronouncements of judgment are pretty severe. The crime is that they looted Israel after Babylon took them into captivity. And to demonstrate that this is not run-of-the-mill wickedness, Ezekiel's oracle nation, or, oracles against the nations, where he pronounces judgment on them, spends three verses on Edom, three verses on Philistia, and then three chapters on Tyre. And after that, there's four chapters on Egypt, because Egypt has been the first oppressor of Israel, and indeed the nation that people are tempted to trust in even at that time. But Tyre, Ezekiel 26 through 28, is very much pronounced judgment against. Yet, Jesus' point here is they would have repented if they had seen what Chorazin and Bethsaida saw. Again in verse 21, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And because they would have repented, you have the statement in verse 22, which should sound familiar from chapter 10. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Within these two verses, and repeated in verses 23 to 24, there are two important points to note. It is mysterious and surprising who will respond in repentance to the gospel. We just simply don't know. The sin-hardened Tyre, who were opportunistic when Israel went into bondage, were less hardened than Chorazin and Bethsaida, Israelite cities who we'd expect to be softer and more ready to repent. And as we have seen before, there's also the point presented here that rejection of Jesus and his message is worthy of more judgment and condemnation than the worst of other sins. And that's, of course, a sin that we're all born with. We are born rejecting Jesus and have to change it to accept him. 
To accept that when he died on the cross, that was the punishment we deserved for our own sin. And so when Jesus says that it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for Chorazin and Bethsaida who failed to repent at the works of Jesus, he's essentially saying, as he says elsewhere, except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. There's no pride that will prevent us from needing to humble ourselves in repentance. There is no status, stature, or action that we could do. The proud who refuse to repent will be brought to judgment. So repent. So turn from your own self, from your own attempts at making yourself better, and come to Jesus. Come to him. The work is done. The pride comes again in the rebuke of Capernaum in verses 23 to 24. And now, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Capernaum has also seen, and actually has seen quite a lot of the mighty works of Jesus. We've talked about the possibility of Capernaum being his base of operations from which he traveled from place to place. As such, they've seen Jesus' mighty works, yet they haven't repented. Instead, they're talking about being exalted unto heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not going to be exalted unto heaven. You will be brought down to hell. And this language of being brought to heaven might even remind us of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. In fact, of trying to build up to heaven to be able to be in the skies and therefore make a name for ourselves. And if we do remember that, we do well. Because that is what Jesus is pointing out. Though he does it by quoting another Old Testament passage, one we would find in Isaiah 14. Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah 14. This is a, a description of judgment coming towards Babylon. And I would say it's reading Genesis 11. Because the word we translate Babel in Genesis 11 is very frequent within the Tanakh, within the Old Testament. But outside of Genesis 11, it is always translated Babylon, not Babel. And so in Isaiah 14, we go back and think about this Babylon and how judgment is coming. And in 14, 13... This is how Babylon is addressed. For thou hast said, 
in thine heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Capernaum's pride in rejecting Jesus is similar to the pride of Babylon throughout, from Genesis 11 all the way to Revelation. The pride of Babylon trying to exalt itself. Then, just to be even more significant and really provide the kicker, Verse 24 and 23 also compare Israel to Sodom. And say that Sodom would have remained to this day, repenting if they had seen the mighty works which were done. And that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Sin hardened Sodom, where men were groping for the door when they were struck blind, trying to get in to do the terrible deeds they were thinking about doing, is less hardened than Capernaum, who is just rejecting Christ. Sin hardened Sodom will have less judgment in the day of judgment than pride-hardened Capernaum, or indeed anyone else whose pride hardens them from repenting and turning to Christ. So we must repent. We must be humbled. We must admit and remember and even rejoice that we are nothing and contribute nothing and that our hope is not in any works of righteousness that we do, but in Jesus and him alone. But why? Why is who would respond so surprising? Well, that comes out in scene number two, where Jesus thanks God for revealing and concealing the truth. This is verses 25 through 27. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. The words at that time are obviously historical, but for Matthew it seems more important that they're thematic 
And that seems even further clear when he says Jesus answered and said. There's no person for him to answer, but there is the situation of verses 20 to 24 that he could be answering. At which point he then prays, I thank thee, O Father. And we ought to remember that Jesus calling God Father, using it as a name, not just a title, it's a familiarity, an intimacy that Jews might find blasphemous. They're not going to claim it for themselves, and the fact that Jesus is using it is an implicit claim that he has a special relationship that no one else does because he is himself God. But his familiarity does not breed contempt but worship as he continues to address him as the Lord of heaven and earth. And he thanks him, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. He thanks him that he's hid these things from the wise and prudent, the people of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, which is weird because the fact that it has been hidden from them leads to Jesus' rejection and persecution. It also is weird because why would you ever thank someone for concealing something beautiful? But Jesus is here in sync with his Father's will because they are indeed one, to the point that he's able to thank him for things that in our mind doesn't make sense, but in Jesus' mind do. And then he thanks them for revealing it unto babes. Because out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast established strength because of your foes. The wonder and mystery of grace is not that God reveals to some. It's also who is revealed to and who is not. As D.A. Carson says, those who pride themselves in understanding divine things are judged those who understand nothing are taught. Then Jesus finishes his thanksgiving in verse 26, saying, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. No direct answer as to why God wills it, but Jesus, in sync with his Father, is able to thank God just for being God, just for doing as he pleases to do. And then he shows in verse 27 that he himself has the same type of authority. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And we perhaps hear this echoed in Matthew 28, 18, when all authority on heaven and earth is given unto me, and so Jesus then says, Go and make disciples of all nations. But here we're probably looking at the authority of verse 25 especially in light of the exclusivity of the relationship between the Father and the Son. The high Christology of saying, No man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Jesus is not just another prophet, 
nor is he just a prophet for Israel. No one but he knows the Father. And no one truly knows him except the Father. He knows the Father and he chooses to reveal him to certain individuals. And that reveal, that will, is decisive. But he transitions. He doesn't just talk about thanking God for his authority, but then gives an invitation. And that's our third scene. Jesus' invitation to rest in him. So, invitation that's stated twice, or we could think of it as two different invitations. And it's stated in verse 28, and it's stated in verses 29 to 30, and the promise in both is the promise of rest. Verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation is not to come to some sort of self-help program. It's not to come to things that, though commanded, are not the primary point. Not to come to a particular doctrinal understanding, not to come to be baptized, not to come to a church, but to come to Him. Him, our personal Savior. And He specifies all who labor and are heavy laden. All who hold burdens. And you would think that the ones who would be coming, who would be invited to come, would be those who know and have life taken care of, who can figure out what to do with their burdens. But the burdens are what qualifies us to come in the first place. Coming to Him saying, We can't take care of this on our own. We are humble and understand that we are nothing take away our burdens. And the burdens could be a few different things. Later on in Matthew, there will be a description of how the Pharisees put heavy burdens on people's backs, a rigid understanding of do's and don'ts of the law, compared especially in, verse, in chapter 12, with how Jesus understands and looks at the heart of the law and interprets it more loosely could be then that type of understanding. could also just be the reality that all of us are under a Genesis 3 curse that interrupted a Genesis 2 rest. And we have sweat on our face that in the way of toil and the cursing of the ground, we have to work and we live with sin. If there is a direct limit it is probably the Pharisees' rigid do's and don'ts. But I think Spurgeon is right to say, it is well to give the largest sense to all that mercy speaks. And to think about all of the burdens we carry, both sin, both heavy work, and just the reality of living in a world cursed by sin where death interrupts people's lives. 
And in light of that, then, he says that to all who labor and are heavy laden, who come to him, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Look at the final, the end times giving of rest, restoring to Eden, even restoring to better than Eden. We could look at the reality of ceasing from work, and that is ceasing from the work that is required to attain righteousness because he's the one who's already done that. Could even, in a related way, have a present rest in the fact that since nothing precipitated God's love for us, nothing we do can eliminate God's love for us. But in all of these ways, it's a rest that only Christ can give. A rest that he gives by dying for us, taking away the plague of the curse upon us, becoming a curse for us, and rising again, showing that the work is done. And so we can rest. But even then, that rest doesn't involve an inactivity is he turns around and describes it as work, as taking a yoke, even then as being a slave. And so the second statement of the invitation in verses 29 to 30, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The learn of me calls back what is the core of discipleship to follow someone around in order to learn from them. And as even seen in Galatians, the term yoke can be used indeed for slavery. Yet he asks us to do this And he gives us good reason to in regard to what his character is and what he can promise us when we serve him in this way. It's good to take his yoke upon us because he is meek and lowly in heart. We could even describe this as this is why Jesus gets out of bed in the morning. It's who he is in his own self-understanding at bottom of his identity. He's the one who will rebuke cities when they don't repent, and he is the one who will finally come to judge the world. But he identifies as meek and lowly, as as unassuming and gentle, as one who's more likely to have open arms than a pointed finger, And though God, he is low in status, easy to be approached, for our sakes became poor, both in the incarnation and more significantly in his humiliating death on the cross. He doesn't want us to take care of our burdens first or fix ourselves up. He's gentle, unassuming, lowly in stature. And so it is no wonder 
that in him we'd find rest for our souls. That we would find such rest precisely in taking his yoke upon us. We're truly free and truly at rest when we are slaves. As long as we're not slaves of sin, but slaves of God, slaves of Christ, and slaves of righteousness. And so we find rest for our souls. And then there's a reason for why we'd find rest for our souls. Verse 30, For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This doesn't mean there won't be times where it's too much for us to handle. But the idea is that because he is meek and gentle, he's not going to lay a burden on us that is more than is needed. His burden will be kind to us and even working in us certain ways and things. Like how we looked at last week in regard to the waiting and expectation for judgment to come and thinking about how we can trust God even in times of great difficulty because he is good and his burden is kind, his yoke is light, doing in us the work of comforting and giving us rest. But in light of this whole passage, God is giving grace to those who are burdened and heavy laden, but not to those who are proud, not to those who refuse to repent, refuse to admit that there is something defective in them. And so Jesus comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And the question is, which one are we? Which one do we need to have? And are we ready to repent of things that we have become too comfortable with in our own lives? Whether we are never repented in the first place or we're Christians on the path of repentance. Let us be humbled. Let us come to Jesus burdened and heavy laden, not trying to lose those burdens on our own, but casting them on him, asking him for the rest that only he can give. Father, I ask that you would help us today, that we would be humbled, that you would work in our hearts and our lives to bring us to you, to cause us to come and to be healed. If there's anyone here who hasn't done that in the first place today, let today be the day of their salvation. And let us all be encouraged by your comfort, by your gentleness, not to try to find a way to approach you that is overly difficult, but to come to you as we are not in pride, but in humility, to the one who for our sakes became poor. And so, God, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?